Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. I'm Julia Stainforth. I'm Maddie Croucher. And I'm Mike Hughes. And we're the hosts of this podcast. But for me, at least, it's my last turn as host. (laughs) I'm leaving uh, Ogilvy and moving on to my next adventure in America. But today, we have another Mike interview in which he chats with Mark Ritson, an adjunct professor at Melbourne Business School. Uh, We caught up with him while he was in town before his keynote at the Festival of Marketing. So, Mike, can you tell us a bit about your chat with Mark? So, we talked about where behavioural sciencing is within broader marketing at the moment, uh, how the data we get back is defined by the systems we design, how do we signal trust in the age of mass targeting, and Mike's T-Van, which is a new side hustle I've got going on. (laughs) Great, so here's the interview. Hello, everyone. I am sat outside on a balmy, balmy morning, global warming for you, um, with Mr. Mark Ritson. Hello. Hello, Mark. How are you, mate? Uh, very good, very good, thank it's you. It's great, the minute you started the podcast, a man with very heavy luggage immediately <laughs> appeared. It's been silent for been 10 very, minutes. He's been waiting there for 10 <laughs> minutes. Um, okay, so welcome to the Obehave podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Delighted to be First here. First question, really small one. Where is behavioural science in marketing? Ah, it's at very, the moment. That's not a small question. <laughs> that's a huge question. Big answer. I, I think there's a couple of places. So, you know, it's interesting if you define it more broadly, much more broadly than you would, then behavioral science is kind of the whole basis of how we understand the market. And, and, the, and if we take it at that broader level, the answer is not getting enough attention as it should. We tend to wait towards tactical choices. Yeah. And we don't understand enough about what's driving and pushing and nudging the customers before we make those tactical choices. But if you look at it as it's kind of used more within our industry and with yourself and Rory and everyone, it really has a more micro uh, focus. And it really, you know, for me, behavioral science and even behavioral economics really represents a a very interesting, minor but important field of marketing which is really understanding what I, would, what I would think about as much shorter, more cognitive impacts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's so many different ways to slice understanding customers. There's all the symbolic stuff. There's all of the anthropological stuff. There's some semiotic stuff. And I see the behavioral gang as kind of being this far more micro cognitive bunch. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. It's, sometimes I think it can be mental trickery you know what I mean and, and, and they do little experiments where they like it's all counterintuitive and the, you think the customer will think that but they think that because we've nudged them that way yeah, yeah. it gets tiresome after a while yeah. whereas I think the real contribution that the behavioral guys can make is to anchor us back in this is how people are processing information in, mm. a, in, a, in a, an actual evidence based way how do you think because that is really interesting, I think, with the kind of, like the interventions, like how, yes. you, how, you know, kind of, you want people to do this, let's test it. How, the one thing which I think is, is an interesting area is like, 
how does it inform, let's say, like product? That's a good question too. Um, I don't think so. So I think if you look at where behavioral science operates best, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, I think it is superficial cues. Yeah. Now, is it possible to, you know, I see it as being a packaging thing, a communication thing, a pricing thing, a framing thing, a tactical thing. Yeah. Can you swim further upstream, first to product itself? Maybe, why not? And then to the actual strategy. I don't know. I don't think they've ever done that particularly well. Mm. And, and by the way, I think if you look at you know where behavioral science is, from, I mean, just framing alone is it works, yeah. and it's phenomenally useful. I mean, these little nudges aren't little when you look at the implications for the business. So yeah, I think it's a great challenge. Could you take some of these principles into product design rather than the gimmicks around which we present that product? Mm. I, I can't think of an example where where anyone can you think of anyone that's that's actually endeavoured to do that? I mean, other than, I think sometimes we want to maximise, so we want it cheaper, we want it quicker, yeah. but actually... That's not the product though, that's, right? Yeah, yeah, that's still the delivery mechanism at the end. Yeah, I mean, so it's, but like, if we take Red Bull, and Red Bull isn't just about the fact that it's no, small no, and really no, expensive, no, no, no. but that's quite counterintuitive, isn't it? It's signalling something else, and something else is going on in the mind of the customer. Could you start to construct that higher on in the kind of design definitely in theory it's just in practice we haven't seen many examples of that but you would think yeah I mean if you know I'll give you a good example it's completely different from your field but it's definitely I have a very good boss called Jean-Andre Ruggio who's the CEO of Benefit Cosmetics in America yeah. and you won't know Benefit but it's a really brilliant uh, makeup and cosmetics brand yeah. and he was wet, always ahead of his time and he said to me years ago it's great that we do this packaging and naming stuff and Benefit do it really well but he said what we really want to do is get into oral beauty and I'm like what you mean lipstick and he went no I actually the future of cosmetics is taking supplements and pills and it's the best way to change beauty Mm. and there's a sort of parallel with with behavioral science in the sense that we're still kind of doing all the superficial blingity stuff and Mm. you know nudge you there nudge you that little tweak there little trick there we didn't see that when in reality, like he's saying, you know, okay, it's great, we have good packaging and we make your eyelashes look darker for 20 minutes. But what we really should do is make your eyelashes darker, you know what I mean, with a pill. Okay. You catch them drift. Yeah, yeah. So in the same way, I think with behavioral science, it's like getting at the actual beast itself. Why not? You know, the taste of something yeah. and how that triggers. I worked a lot in perfume and we focus so much on the visual cues when we know that, particularly in perfume, but in every category, the oral cues that come from smelling so much more powerful than Redland and we never really used it even in the perfume business because I think you're right at the kind of tactical level Um, but then also where you place the product can create because it's about creating the context for that product you got it if you create the context for something people are more likely to decide it's a very broad framing strategy right where it appears and who it appears next to Mm. has I mean I don't want to get onto you know there's an old cliche, hoary old cliche about, you know, eye level on the store, which I... Eye <laughs> level's a buy level. Eye level's a buy level. <laughs> and, then, and then you get onto, you know, sending smells of the bakery through... <laughs> yeah. the, and it, none of that ever happened ever, right? I always think the bakery things... No, no, yeah. no. It's, it's famous. Like, you, got, you get people on the radio all the time talking about like, eye level, and then you put the pump the smell of the... Ba- and it's like, no, I don't think... Pre- there's, there's loads of research on priming and loads of it's rubbish. Yeah. And it happens once in a fucking lab, and then no yeah. one ever does it for real. <laughs> you try 
baking. I go to fucking William Morris yeah. and try getting every William Morris to pump the smells of the bakery. Probably if you want to sell your house, make bread in the morning. Sure. It's not sure. about the price. But if your house is shit in the first place, <laughs> to your point. So I think, yeah, that I worry a little bit. And that's where, I, you know, maybe it is a limitation of the ambition of people that work in behavioral science. Or maybe there is a genuine limitation there. I know my experience of it in America with American professors was it really did become a kind of little sort of conjuring trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. Distribution. I've worked a lot in distribution particularly when you're launching a brand you know what is distribution distribution is the way we make volume and profit but to begin with it's neither of those things distribution is the way we build brand yeah much more important than packaging that's where it appears mm. where it's framed how it first presents itself to who i think is probably the most important contextual variable for a brand in b2c and sometimes b2b so why couldn't some of these principles of behavioral science be applied to that in more detail? I just don't see anyone doing that, you know? Well, I was going to ask you, how much do you use it in academic life? How much do you kind of use the codes, the frameworks? Well, very little. I mean, I think it, it, in the one area where I think everyone's more comfortable talking about it is within, with respect to packaging and packaging design, which tends to be really the most basic stuff, I think, right? Yeah. So there, there is a, there is the strong seams of work that look at the manner in which you use behavioral cues to fit into a category, to signal value, in my world, to communicate brand differentiation through distinctiveness. Yeah. I think that's a place where we do do we do are we are more focused upon it. But it, again, I really think it's unfortunately my take on it is. It's always been a little pocket over here, like Richard Shotton's stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, because so that's really at the, at the end of the process. When you say you end, like. you mean? Well, the kind of the tactics, if you like. Here is the output of all, or a lot of our work, which yes. is this is how we want to talk to people. And at the end of that, hopefully, we might kind of use some human understanding to speak to them in a more <laughs> optimised way. Yeah, and I think... If you look at Richard's work, which is very, very good, and in many cases, I think most, some of the most impactful stuff, mm. it is short snippets of flicks in your face. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the nature of the beast. I don't, mm. know, I don't know myself, but that's my external take on it, that from Rory down, you're very smart, extremely evidence-based flickers of people's ears. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe that is your limitation, and maybe it's just the imagination isn't broad enough. But in the, I think in the customer world, there's this, in the client world of doing marketing, there is a feeling that we could use it more, but it just never, it doesn't seem to have ever taken on. How much is all, because human understanding when you do market research, so we, we kind of have like, so we do some implicit association testing. Yeah. When we're trying to get people to, because obviously the things, people don't say what they think, don't do what they say. How do you think some more understanding of people can help with that? It's a good question too. I mean, I think we overuse the system one, system two stuff at the moment yeah. in marketing. And if you ever read- I mean, I build a career on it. Oh, it's everywhere, <laughs> I tell you. No one's ever read Kahneman's book, but- um, <laughs> I think you get to chapter three. Then. Well, you just, you just hang around marketing people and you feel like you've read it, you know? <laughs> but if you actually read the book, which I unfortunately have done, um, he, he just, it's just bullshit. If you actually read system one, he goes, literally in the book, he says, look, this isn't really true, but let's call it system one and system two. I'll just invent yeah. those names, even though they don't really exist, and most of this is piss. 
but we miss that bit we just go oh yeah this is system one part of your brain system two right I mean the thing that like you know that we try not to do is when people think that these things are the answer oh we've got the answer now we know all we need to do is feed it into the system one system two computer and then it will come out and I think the really interesting thing yeah. for us is when we're trying to do ethnography when we're trying to understand about what people are currently doing so then we can say okay so they're currently doing what are the drivers and barriers in the behavior but i think that's where you're in a weak place right and we all are because i've spent i mean i did my phd in ethnography right i'm a huge believer of it um but i also love my quant um for other reasons and those two paradigms of qual and quant which aren't just qual and quant there are huge philosophies of science behind them yeah. you know as you know um inductive and deductive nomological and ideographic they're, they're the two spheres of insight and you need your ethno and ethno is the best tool if you can really do it properly mm. to see what's going on and sometimes a great situated interview can be the most revealing thing of all yeah. the problem comes trying to work out well why did you do that and they they just don't know yeah. and even a great ethnographer with many many days in the field doesn't know either and so that's where you move into your quant. But the problem I have then is we get really bad quant, which is, you know, there's a couple of really dumb questions you see everywhere. The dumbest of them all is, which of the following marketing, you know, impacts has influenced you? You know, tick the following boxes. Or, like, what the fuck? You know, like, you know, has advertising influenced you? No. Has packaging influenced you? Yes. I mean, they ask these questions. Yeah. And then the other one is, what are the most important attributes in your decision making? And it's like... <laughs> who knows that even well, that's involved, but, but that's in about 80% of questionnaires right so that's where for me a little bit of elegance in questionnaire design so I'm a, a massive freaky fan of correlation coefficients even though they're a little bit dodgy in terms of causation and correlation you yeah. can get around that for the most part I, I, I have the same question I use for everyone when I get I do my qual when I get to my quant I'm really looking at um, what are your perceptions of the brand and then I'm looking at um, what are they driving in terms of the correlations of consideration or preference or whatever else. And when I've got a big enough data set and I'm able to compare those that consider the brand with those that don't, you know, we're both aware. Yeah. I've got 400 customers, 200 aware, 200 aware, but for one reason or another, these guys would consider you and these guys wouldn't. Split the sample. What are the correlation drivers that these guys are demonstrating that these guys aren't? that's the closest you get to be able to slice someone's brain open and go you know all right it's your perception that it's a fun brand yeah now the, the counter to that is as many will say you know well once you start considering a brand you backward engineer the sort of fun thing mm. and I'm not but I've had enough longitudinal data to know that's not as big a thing as people say it's, right. it definitely happens yeah, yeah. it flows back and forward right as I consider it I start to improve my perception of it but it also works the other way too. So for me, I love qual, but to get at what are the drivers, I really, really like unspoken variables out of quantitative data. How much, how much do you do in digital in terms of kind of like what people are doing maybe online? Uh, a little bit, I mean, not, it's not really my bag. Um, I think it, I remember there was a guy who's very famous now called Rob Kozinets in America. And he's a professor at Kellogg. And he was doing all this, Rob was doing all this work on what we called their netnography. And looking at how people made choices, right? And qualitatively studying user groups, then quantitatively running experiments. And I always thought, fuck, that's good. 
because of course you were so much closer to actual reality yeah. in a lab setting than if we just run a lab. I mean, yeah. you look at Cheadle, Hume, Tesco have had that pretend supermarket up for 20 years where they, you know, they send customers in and they go shopping and they, you know, they had to oh, do yeah, all of that, yeah, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. Just to sort of experiment. Mm. Whereas when you're doing online experimentation and you're testing framing or pricing or, you know, usability, the reality and the lab are almost the same. And if you look at what Amazon have been doing for years, being able to, where, where it's legally possible, present 400 different web pages yeah. and test the behavioral responses mm. and the pricing differences where, you know what I mean? It's been, when, when they've been caught out by that, I've found that highly amusing because they're not doing anything wrong. They're just trying to learn from customers. Yeah. There's a big scandal a few years ago where they were accusing them of charging more for DVDs for old people. Because I think someone, you know, someone was trying to sell Mission Impossible for 17 bucks to an old woman, yeah. and her daughter was getting it offered her for 10 bucks, and they just got caught up in a big experiment. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? There were different pictures of Tom Cruise and everything like that, mm -hmm. and it was all coming from Amazon. And for a second, you just glimpsed the 4,000 different experiments that were running, but they saw two and assumed, well, woo, they're charging more to old people. I mean, that's the thing now with like bad user experience online. You just don't know whether you're in the bad condition. <laughs> <laughs> there is no I was on yeah, LinkedIn the other day were, I was on LinkedIn and someone didn't work and I thought oh maybe I'm just in like condition 350 no, only, only marketers think that way I'll tell you my, my favourite ever story nothing to do with that but linked to it was I um, when I moved to Australia I used to fly Qantas a lot and it, it was terrible when I first got to Australia and I fly business most of the time and they would, you know, they'd never have my meal. Like, they'd give you a nice menu, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, fucking chicken pancakes. And then by the time the, 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 the server got to you, it was like, oh, no, sorry, sir, we've, we've sold out of chicken pancakes. And it just drove me batty, because then, what, you know, don't fucking give me the menu. Just tell me what there is when you come to exactly. me, you know? It's really causing me umpha. And I happened to be at a dinner with the boss of uh, Qantas, the then boss of Qantas, and I said to him, you know, many years later, because it did get better, and when I, you know, I saw chicken pan pancakes, and they had the chicken pancakes. And I was like, fuck, you know, he's really sorted these guys out, you know. Yeah. He's got fucking, got proper operations and yeah, systems yeah. now. And I said to him, I said, and it was meant as a compliment. I said, look, when I first got to Australia, you were fucking terrible, never had my meal. But now, I said, you've always got my meal. And he said, yeah, what, what's your status? So I'm platinum now, because I fly Qantas. Yeah. He said, well, we come to you first. So in the, if you ever look in a business class cabin, Qantas will come to, every, they'll get your points out. Yeah, yeah. I'm usually the number one flyer, so it's like, Mr. Ridson, what would you like? And then some <laughs> other poor buffoon isn't getting the chicken pancakes. But my point of the story is, I'm a marketing professor. <laughs> I build segmentation models. It had never occurred to me that was going on. <laughs> and so your example's a good one, but I really think one of the great tricks of segmentation, targeting, experimentation is we always assume everyone's getting the same. Yeah. You know, when Tesco used to send out those 80,000 different variations of coupon books, yeah. nobody ever thought, why are they sending me these ones? They just assumed everyone was getting the same book. And I think that's a very huge advantage that you can do behavioral science under the cloak of homogeneity, you know? No one ever thinks that apart from a few freaks that do it. How, because with digital, I think, your data will only be based on the choice that you give people. True. So how much is, can, do people work, because, you know, we've kind of worked with some big companies around that, and it's always surprising, they go, well, we'll just see what the data says. Well, you, you, yeah, but th there's, an there's a great answer to this, and it is a common problem. So I spent about five years training McKinsey consultants. McKinsey consultants love quant data. They particularly love conjoint. 
yeah. in their mission statement. And it's a, and you can see why if you're a consulting company, right? Conjoint is too complicated for a client to do, but the results are so intuitive. They go, oh, that's clever. And what's conjoint for so, co- yes, and so, me? Don't sorry, know. sorry, sorry. This is it's not a behavioral science <laughs> technique. Conjoint's a beautiful. It's basically revealed choices. So. I'm going to give you, uh, on, usually online these days, 10 choices. So I'm going to say to you, right, you can have uh, a hotel, holiday, you can have a holiday, a five-star hotel with a pool, uh, bed and breakfast, or four-star with a pool, bed and breakfast, A or B, B. Okay, now I'm going to give you both five-star hotel choices, but one has a pool, one doesn't have a pool, A or B. And over about, depending on many attributes, seven or eight choices, <clears throat> you get um, perfect utility scores for how important the attributes are with a price attached to them. So they're prepared to pay more for this. The ideal mix for these group would be pool, four star, $200. Mm. It's a pretty good method. And you can split it out and discover segments and go, right, there's two segments. They want a pool, they want five star. Never lets you down. And um, <clears throat> I've used it and I, it's a great method for pricing and for positioning. But the point about conjoint, the point about your question is it's only ever as good as the attributes you test in the first place. Yes. And when I worked with McKinsey, it was like they'd always come and do a conjoint and they'd say, look, it's definitely A, C, D, and E. And I'd say, but where did those options come from? Like, well, we, you know, <laughs> from the category. I'm like, mm, you know? Yeah. Right now, we've got a big movement to disprove differentiation. And a lot of the Ehrenberg Bass followers, not Ehrenberg Bass, I don't think they're that guilty of this, excuse me. <clears throat> but I think a lot of the Ehrenberg Bass sort of boy band that follow them, are intent on showing that it's only distinctiveness and differentiation is, yes, is non-existent. Is yeah, yeah. And the reason they're doing that is your point again. They go and look at a category. They pull out category variables. They, they compare the 10 brands in the category and they go, well, they're all pretty much the same. And it's like, yeah, because categories don't exist. Hmm. They never existed. They're a confection of marketers, yeah? Okay. If you talk to someone in the market, a real customer, their consideration set is smaller and not a category, right? It crosses categories. And if you want to look at the attributes to test, they aren't the ones in the category because, of course, they're generic. They're points of parity. Find out from the brands what they're really positioning on and see if that's different versus the other competitors. Because the one thing that I've always thought with brand is that if you're down a high street and Starbucks is way down the road and you're outside Costa. I think people that go, oh, no, 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 no. Huh. I'm, I'm a Starbucks person. I don't yeah, go yeah, to yeah. Costa. That's like, how we, that's do how you we just have like three or four of these brands? You definitely do. And, and having given some shit to Ehrenberg Bass, let's give them some credit. I think one of their many great inputs into, into the debate where they have added evidence, again, they, they oversell it a little. Like, you know, there's no such thing as brand loyalty. But to your point, there is, you know, polygamous loyalty in the sense that there are certain brands you'd never go in but there's two or three depending if they're available that you mm. would visit and I think that <coughs> that's more realistic um, and, and to your example yeah you, there's a Starbucks that's closer and down the road you can see a Costa you got a Starbucks will do that's how most customers most of the time exhibit a preference for certain brands it, there's a multiple group that are acceptable and is that because essentially if you see Starbucks and then you see Mike's mobile tea van. Is it because we instinctively trust Starbucks and the uncertainty of yeah. Mike's mobile tea van, which does great tea, by the way? Yeah. Then we won't trust that as much because all all the one we hate uncertainty. 
two, it could, you know, kind of. No, you got it. You got it. It's, it's a very complex point. If you really study brands properly, it's all of the above. So why does Max Mobile T not not work? First, because at a pre-conscious level, we are hotwired to prefer familiar over strange stuff. Yeah. You know, the Zion's work from the 1970s is my, some of my favorite social psych. It's right up your street. And Zion's could show that, um, you know, it was a classic experience where he'd show undergraduates 10 nonsense words, yeah, completely you know, nonsensical words. Go and have a lunch break, bring them back, and show them a list of another 10 nonsense words. And all of them were different except one. And then when he said to them, which is your... Which of these 10 nonsense words do you like the most? 80% of them picked the word they'd been exposed to prior. Yeah. And when he said to them, which of these words did you see before? None of them could spot it. So we have this subconscious, subconscious is a tricky word, pre-conscious um, f- familiarity bias. And then to your point, on a higher, more, more co- co- conscious level, you know, what did not kill me last time will not kill me this time. Yeah. And I think we forget this is how brands operated until the 20th century. Yeah. The reason I'm going to go to ye old tea house here is there's no food and service standards. But I remember them and they didn't fucking kill me last week. Yeah. Whereas these guys might. And I think the second level is just, you know, I know these guys and I remember them. So we've got so a pre-conscious and a conscious level. And the third level then is meaning. So on top of that, I've got Starbucks is all about being a go-getter in America and being ready for the day. And then there's Mike's van just, just looks like it makes tea. And is that when it goes too fast? <coughs> start start we're set outside Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. Starbucks doesn't want to sell me coffee anymore. It wants to enlighten my world in some way. That's is that, right. Is that because it's just gone too far now? It's completely lost the plot. And the way that happens is because people who work at Starbucks spend eight hours a day working at Starbucks on their brand and have started to believe that the brand is somehow bigger than it really is. And, and, and it's legion everywhere. Brands are small things. And again, I mean, God, I'm giving them lots of credit, but Ehrenberg Bass have been very good at giving us evidence of that. Brands aren't a big thing in people's lives. They're a big thing in an executive's life as a brand manager, so they overstate their importance. And, and my work, uh, I think, is very clear uh, and, and has been successful in showing that, or not showing, because I'm not showing it to anyone, but in working with companies, you know, it's very crude, but I think you've got two or three brain cells where you can slot a little bit of meaning in, nothing fancy, but you can, you know, you can say to people, we're bold and we're girly and we're fun, and we can get that across to a marker. Mm. And that, that's, a, you know, on top of an awareness and a familiarity and a repeat pattern and a distinctiveness, that little icing layer on the top is useful. Mm. It's useful, you know. I was in, you know, I, this is why I really don't like the current direction of marketing because it really is anti-differentiation. And I went down to, um, I forgot, I'm a big braces wearer. You can't see it on the podcast. I'm wearing my braces. And I have proper braces. It's nothing worse them clip-on braces that you, you know, comedians used to wear in the 1970s in Blackpool. <laughs> <coughs> Clowns used to wear. So I have proper braces, you know, with buttons. And I, like, I, I don't like belts. And I like, it just helps a big fat fuck like me. And, um, so I forgot my braces, and so I, I've got trousers that are deliberately too big for me, and I've got no braces. So I had to rush down a Savile Row, because I was work, I was doing the APG presentation around the corner. Yeah, yeah. And I rushed into Savile Row, to Jeeves and Orgs or somewhere, and you know, bought myself a pair of braces. But just that experience of just five minutes, as soon as you rush in there, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, it's Savile Row, and you know, it's quite modern these days, but there was a lot of nice tailors, and they had lots of different thirst and 
you know, and they're different colors. And do you want to try that one on, sir? And there was another Russian guy trying on a really nice suit, and we had a little chat. That's the bit we're missing, right? It's that. That's a big. I came out of that street of Savile Row, going, "A, oh, I feel good about being English. I feel good about being old. This is something I wouldn't have done in my thirties. I feel good about having a little bit of money to be able to buy a hundred quid pair of braces." We're missing that piece now. We've we've moved so far away from it to the cognitive triggers, the cultural meaning-based stuff, the softer stuff, has been lost. It's interesting because with Savile Row, I mean, clearly, it's just because over time it's built up. Yeah, it, you know, hundreds of years. But it's a costly signal. If you're on Savile Row, there's been enough gatekeepers to tell whether you're shit at what you do for being Yeah, there's Savile a rationality Row. to that. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think it's interesting that it just comes down to trust again. You will, if you've got, a, if you're pressed for time, you've got to make a decision. You know that you, it's pretty good that if you go to that area, you'll get something. Well, it's the only place, literally, it, rationally, it's the only place in London that will have proper braces, right? I mean, Selfridges didn't have them. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. But on top of it, not competing with it, is also that meaning, cultural-based feeling you get from that moment. Yeah, you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah. The rational setup is there. But when you're inside, it isn't just rational signaling. It's, it is something deeper. And we've spent too long now. We've moved the dial so far to being physical and mental availability and yeah. the color green and yeah, framing yeah. that you miss the other bit which is it's fucking Savile Row and I've got a million quid and that felt good you know what I mean how much can brands that are just starting because if if trust is a huge driver not the only driver but it's a big driver how much can brands who are just starting off how do they compete I mean it's <laughs> my answer is always targeting right so we're moving into a world now of the 60-40 rule which will become the dominant theory of our business I think I, I mean the Field and Burnett stuff is the it's new but it's gonna it tells us you know you're 40% short term which is targeted 60% long term which is yeah. untargeted so you know I, but I still think the answer to your question is in that initial targeting so you can't immediately build global trust yeah so the 64-year-old is great once you're an established brand. To begin with, you want to partition off a brand in a particular segment, make that your market, and build trust among that group. And then it can spread. Because you haven't got the scale. The thing that's missing from a lot of these models is scale, resources. If you haven't got the money, which new brands don't have, you can't do long-term, untargeted. Yeah, yeah. So you, what you do is you carve out a small, influential group that have what we call spillover potential to other segments and you build it with them first. Mm. And then gradually, if you get your game right, you know, a bit of luck, but a bit of impact, it starts to spread from there. And I think that's, you, need, you do need trust. I mean, obviously you never position on trust, though everyone wants to. You position- Trusted partner. Trusted partner. There's, I mean, I forget, there's a guy called Kent Grayson who you should get on your podcast. He's a professor at Kellogg. And Kent is known as the trust professor. Okay. Mostly because I call him the trust professor in all the interviews. He's an old buddy of mine from LBS, but he runs the trust center at Kellogg. And he'll tell you there are certain drivers of trust that you have to pull to achieve trust mm. rather than trust itself. You know, it's like, it's like you know. Yeah, you can't say I'm really like, you know, if you're on a date and you're like, I'm completely you trustworthy. Can trust me. Yeah, not, don't you worry about anything. The minute you trust. go on the tube and the guy says to you, you know, you can trust me. The one thing you know is you can't trust yeah. them, right? But it's, like, but it's also like Mourinho sort of telling Man United on Saturday, well, what, what I want us to do is win this game. <laughs> yeah, okay, you want trust. <laughs> yeah. But you can't just write trust yeah. in your positioning statement exactly. 
And what Grayson's work is good at is identifying there are three or four ways you can build or break trust, and that's how you get there. And if you can't do it with trust, is the other thing like, would you go, okay, so is differentiation uh, like more advantageous early on because you're just competing for attention early on? Oh, that's a great point too. Yeah, I, I, um, I think most brands are too safe. And I think, how do you generate not just trust, but aware? I mean, it's awareness, right? I mean, the first job of a small brand is to be known. I mean, f in my world of branding, which is more simplistic than most people's, I, I, there's two challenges and only two challenges. I want to get 100% of the market to know I exist. Awareness, salience, whatever you want. It's never going to creep past double digit, but I'm going to try and get to 100. And for all those that know I exist, I want them to think the following things, the associations, the image, right? But most people underestimate that first challenge of awareness. But most, most people don't know your brand exists, even though they're in the target market. Yeah. And so people wank around worrying about positioning and distribution and behavioral cues. And it's like, mate, 92% of your target market have never heard of you. Yeah. And so what that tells you, long before Dergelet models and positioning stuff kick in is, you need to set fire to shit, right? I mean, I'm a pretty good example of that in the sense that, you know, I was talking about it yesterday at the Festival of Marketing. Around 40% of British marketers hate me, around 40% like me, and 20% don't know who I am. But that 40% that love me is about 39.8% more than any other marketing professor in the UK. <laughs> now, do I have 40% of people who think I'm a wanker? Yeah, I do. But I draw your attention to the 40% that like me. You've got to break eggs if you're going to get anywhere, particularly, at a, you know, I'm in an interesting position in my career where I'm relatively now well-known, not as well-known as Rory, but, you know, I'm, I'm there a bit. So now there's less emphasis on having to do that because I'm not a quote-unquote new brand. Mm. If you were starting out now, you'd want to, you know, you'd really want to go for it on something. I mean, in my world, I've positioned very deliberately against Ehrenberg Bass. I like Ehrenberg Bass stuff, but it's overwrought. I've positioned yeah. against Facebook. I like Facebook, but again, this is a great strategy most people miss. There's two ways to position a brand, in my experience. You can position to a customer and say, I'm this, or you can find something that they don't like and go, and I'm not that. Yeah. And they both work really well, yeah, yeah, really yeah. well. Because you borrow the awareness of your, of your foe and also the positioning strength to build your own brand. I was doing a, a new uh, TV show about Ryanair, who I'm a huge fan of, and O'Leary, who's a genius. And that's how O'Leary's done it. And she was asking me about, well, they've got a lot more competitors now. And I'm like, yeah. It's just going to make him stronger because there's more mirrors in the room yeah, to reflect yeah, off, yeah. right? That's how good he is, man. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people miss O'Leary as an example of that. He's a Trinity-educated lawyer with a first-class degree. He's not a bozo, man. Yeah, He's yeah. played that role to perfection for 20 years. It's interesting for them because when you're not the market leader and you throw stones at the market leader and then, then the market leader throws stones back, there's two of you in the market then. And the big problem they've had is the old Hertz problem. They became number one, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. there's them and Lufthansa now, but they're often the, their biggest European carrier. But he just ignores that and continues to pretend like we're small and we're... Yeah. He did like... I mean, they're advertising... Because Dave Trott's always like... 98% of advertising goes unnoticed. He's right. I mean, one of the great gifts I've had is... In the old days, when I was writing... I've been writing a column for 20 years. I used to write a column for British Airways, right? On the back of their flight magazine. And so I'd sit on planes when I lived in London and you'd see people getting out the BA flight magazine you know, long before you could look at your phone. And you, you know, you'd have three guys in front of you on the plane, you'd wait for them to get to your fucking column and I was the back page, right? <laughs> and they'd get to it and they'd just go like that. <laughs> and so what that gives you is that, that sense that Trot has that you, know, you design these ads yeah. for like, oh. no one cares about your shit. But when you see it in market, 
you see what a pile of shit it really is and how little effect it has. And my work, again, with clients is all about that. So I, I am closer to your world now, again, what I call codes, what maybe everyone else calls distinctive assets, I force my clients to overuse them. Yeah. And I make the point that, exactly this point, most customers don't know it's you. And the example, I, the best example of that was Verve Clico. So I spent many happy years working for Verve Clico in France. And Clico has, you know, the yellow label. Yeah, yeah. Which is a very good story behind it, which we won't have time to tell, but about basically English and French people hating each other. It's worth, it's worth a minute, right? So <laughs> there was a, an error with the labeling of Verve Clico. Is, um, it was always a very strong house. Mm. And the British are really are the leading connoisseurs of champagne and always have been. Yeah. And the dosage of sugar and all that, everyone follows the British. We don't make champagne, but we, we drank it well. So Britain was a big market and Clico uh, was sending them all this beautiful champagne. But there was a, an error with the print run and they sent them a, a, what should have been a white label was a little bit yellow. And um, when they came to reorder stock, the, the British distributor said, we want more of that nice yellow label that you had. And the French said, what are you talking about? It was a mistake, you know, you get the white label again. And yeah. they went, no, no, we want the yellow one. And I think it was Madame Clicquot herself went, right, you know, basically in French, you know, fuck these fucking English pigs. Make the most grotesquely yellow label you can for these tasteless, you know, Angleterre. And, um, and, and, and the British went, oh, that's fantastic, I love that. And then the French went, God, it's really good, we'll have it as well. So anyway, so yellow label is an icon, you know, it's one of the great codes of any industry. But when I worked with Clico initially in France, they were like, we want to move away from the yellow label, we've overdone it. Yeah. And one of my big challenges was to go, <laughs> no, why listen, you can't. And, but it's interesting, why, why did Clico want to move away from one of the greatest codes in branding? And the answer was, if you've worked for Clico for 25, 30 years, which many of them have, you're pretty much done with yellow, right? Yeah, you think you've overdone yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But we know as customers that twice a year you're in a bar with a pretty girl or your wife or, or, or someone and you look across and, and there's, a, there's that yellow label and you're like, oh, you know, Clico. <laughs> and that lesson is just so big. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complex to be a big lesson. So I take all my clients and I just codify the shit out of it. And the first thing I say to them is, there's like 10 steps I take them through. The first level of success is your agency will come to you and say, you're overdoing it. That's the first level of happiness for a client. I want an unhappy agency because they want to move on to a different code yeah. and they think it's too obvious. And uh, I've got a bank right now that I'm working with that just got to that level and the CMO's come to me and gone. Yeah. The agency's pretty much telling us they're gonna resign because it's just so ridiculously overdone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because <laughs> the agencies don't get it, they move too much. See? Yeah. So yeah, that point of overusing codes uh, to the point of, you know, as Dave Trott says, most of it's not noticed. My first job, beyond creativity or strategy is they will know I'm here as a brand. Yeah. You must know that I am here. After that, we can talk about more complex things. You know, 2% of you know me, I'm gonna get that up to 50, and then we'll talk about other things. How does it work, when you were talking before about kind of targeting, how does it work that if we, if we <coughs> don't see the same message, so we're targeted advertising, because yep. it's fine, like when you're Adidas, it's fine, because you've got the Adidas logo and everyone goes, yeah, it's Adidas, pretty much trust them. How does it work for brands who aren't well known when, you, when, when we don't all see the same messages, so when you kind of have ultra targeting, there's not enough people to call out bullshit on those messages, which kind of means there's not enough gatekeepers almost. So 
if you see something in a traditional press, enough people will see and go, well, that's that's wrong. You know, like you kind of the costly signaling. Yeah. How does how does that work when if you can start to put things out on the internet which are kind of like wrong or not right? How does it work? Because that that's essentially fake news, isn't it? People can do that with advertising. So it's, yeah, absolutely fake news. This dark advertising, as they call it, has distinct advantages. I wouldn't go as far as call it wrong and right. Um, as long as it's legal, I think it's covert and potentially effective. I mean, if you look at the political campaign for Brexit or for the last election, both on Labour and, and the Conservative side, the ability to deliver messages which your competitor was not aware you were delivering mm. until much later is a unique thing we've never seen before. And that certainly did happen, right? Whether it was effective is a different question, but being able to have, you know, I mean, it's, the, it's kind of the opposite of signaling, right? It's, it's, it's dark advertising and it allows you to move around and do an you know, SAS style messaging. And by the time your competitor finds out what it was, the game's over. Mm. So I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's a different dimension we've not seen before. And do you think that has a knock-on effect for some advertisers? Because, because trust goes down. Well, yes and no. I mean, how would you use this practically, right? First of all, you wouldn't just do this, right? The answer to this question is not to then go in and just do this. You are doing the signaling stuff. You're doing the outdoor stuff. You're spending 50, 60% of your budget on a nuclear explosion. That is, this is who we are. We stand for all of this. Underneath that is the stuff you're talking about, which is tick, 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 tick. Based on that big brand positioning, I'm now going to make a much more specific yeah, claim. Yeah. If you're afraid of foreign people, I'm going to say, you know, we're conservatives, we're all about Britain and looking for Britain's future. And then if you're, you know, fundamentally racist, I'm now going to say, look at all these fucking foreign people coming into this country, we'll stop that. Yeah. But if you're against, you know, if you want to protect, I don't know, hunting, you go, we're going to protect hunting. You know what I mean? You see what I mean? And it links back to that broad oh, campaign at the top, and that's powerful. And going back to Mike's tea van, because we, if I wanted to do some Facebook advertising, would I need to put in some feedback loop? So, I, so basically it's like, well, I know he's only down the road, but what happens when you can't build in those feedback loops for brands? Because I think that's an interesting thing. Yeah. We need these kind of, we need these systems in place Definitely. to go. Well, there's two, there's two or three ways to play that system, right? In, in a digital world, we kind of test and learn and we have those gates in there, right? Yeah. And that's fine. In the more traditional world, we, we had a recurrent cycle of research that was meant to give us that and, and allow us to, to adjust, and normally on an annual cycle. But then in Mike's T-Van's case, the other one, which is a big advantage of retail, is the customer proximity means I can constantly do that at the point of service. And it's the biggest advantage of retail is because I have customer proximity and the tea suppliers don't have it, but I have it, a, I can build my brand directly to you, but I can also learn from you in the most customer-oriented way of all. Right, what's better ethnography and what's a better feedback loop than course, looking at my yeah, customers yeah. buying it yeah. in real time every day? That's why retailers test and learn and win, even when they don't do it in a sort of digital way. They've always done it. Now, they don't know why. I mean, that's fascinated me for many years. You know, Sainsbury don't know why bananas sell better in a, in a wooden crate versus a plastic crate and they don't really care <laughs> the point is they've tried them both out and they've discovered that there's a plus eight percent uplift in a wooden crate that's the weakness of retailer insight they're not really bothered about the drivers 
they're, 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 they're kind of brainless in that respect, right? They're closer to your focus, really, in, in sense of, I don't know why that that green is better than that blue, but it is by 12%, so we'll do it. If they understood that, could they use it in other areas of the store? Maybe, but I think it's so deeper and harder to get to why, and they're in such a hurry, and they're retailers, so they can't be fucked. Course, yeah. You know, you ask a retailer, who are brilliant creatures, right? They move twice as fast as manufacturers. I mean, it's psycholo- like the psychology in the supermarket is... Like but, but if you look at Aldi and you look at uh, Tesco, there isn't a lot of understanding of customer motivations. There's a lot of understanding of behavioural signals uh, and actual behavior, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, scanner data, <coughs> club card data, it doesn't tell you anything about why. It just tells you that if you, you know, combine a special offer on croutons and milk, you get a big win you know, up by 12%. It's a brainless but very important set of data points. Facebook is doing TV and Instagram TV. So obviously, we'll be able to target kind of commercials now. Facebook TV's pretty standard advertising structure as well it's like adverts at start adverts in the middle adverts at the end but it's interesting how do you think kind of targeting like different messaging in the adverts will work it's a very it's a very important stage so i believe first of all that um the television set remains the predominant uh, source of video for the foreseeable future i think mobile video has its place but it's a small place and was oversold to us but when I say the television set is going to be dominant, I don't necessarily mean that ITV and Channel 4 will, yeah. will be dominating that screen. I think Facebook have a big issue in the sense they don't have a natural way of getting on the TV. Facebook running TV on a phone is not that interesting to anyone, including Facebook. Yeah. They need to get on the big screen. Yeah. So how will that work? There are two phases coming. I mean, this is a fucking fascinating. Yeah? This is what I was talking about last night with the TV guys. There's two phases coming. The first phase, which I think is about seven years from now, and will be the next seven years, TV cannot play a long and short game, in my opinion. It should go with the, we're non-targeted, we're emotional, we're reach, we're incredible CPM, we're the nuclear explosion, we're the long of it. This yeah. is why you need us. And then you can ta 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 my, my recommendation is play that game. And then the short of it, which is going to come for TV, is addressable TV, sold programmatically. In Sweden, we're pretty close to it now. The issue is, you know, and Sky aren't far away from it now, right? They're getting close to it. When we get to the point where 60, 70% of British households are essentially getting addressable TV, and they won't even know it. Yeah. For them, it'll just appear to be Sky TV, right? The ads won't be flickering Sky or anything. TV, yeah. yeah, and then ITV will do it. Everyone's going to do it through the app, right? Yeah. People won't even know that the TV pod has changed to addressable, targeted ads. But the quality of the data, the trust, the eyes on screen, the processing, means that they will blow YouTube out of the water if they're still on that screen. But my point is, that's a golden future for TV, but it's seven or eight years away. And I'm not certain that ITV and Channel 4 are dominating the TV by the time we get seven or eight years from now. I think Amazon are running the TV sets. If you look at your remote control, it's already got a YouTube button on it. So this is the game. This is the big game now. And the reason it's a big game is every single dollar, almost without exception of digital marketing's rise over the last 10 years has come from news media. Take anything from radio or cinema or TV. Look at the lines of media spend. They're all flat. News media, magazines, decimated. There's no more money left to take. So there has to now be the move to TV. And I think it's the, I mean, I know it's the great game. I, 
you know, my strategic discussions around Europe and America are with TV companies on exactly this point. And it is a massive, massive game for the future. Just, and I suppose, finally, does that, with people who deliver these, like, so these kind of content publishers, TV channels, whatever you want to call them, does that come back to actually, it's actually just a branding, it's going to be about branding for those, if you watch YouTube news, are you going to believe that news over BBC no, News? No, no, you're absolutely right, I mean, there's no reason why we should separate this all out, right, in fact... I had a debate last night um, at a dinner I was at, and we had the head of Aldi, you know, one of the senior guys at Aldi, one of the guys from Channel 4, one of the guys from Ricketts, and we were, you know, we were having a good drink and a good talk, and we all were debating at one point, you know, what we were going to do about Amazon, because Amazon are likely to be running private label, you know, yeah, home cures, yeah, they're yeah, certainly yeah. competing with Channel yeah. 4. Aldi are worried about, or this guy was saying, you know, we have to be worried about Amazon buying Whole Foods and coming into the market. And I said to them all, just for a moment, because we hadn't noticed it, never in the history of marketing would you have a over-the-counter drug manufacturer, a supermarket and a TV station, and we're all talking about the same competitor. Yeah. That's a different thing. And so I think they are just brands. And the strength of Amazon and Google in particular is their ability to have one big brand and really focus upon it and do everything centrally out of the US. Their weakness though is they are one big brand. The branding issue is huge now. It is a battle of brands. And what Channel 4 and ITV and BBC have is they're the great brands of our, we all grew up as working class kids. You grew up with ITV and BBC. And they were, you know, they gave you everything. And, you know, I was at TV Centre last night, you know what I mean? And you just see that building, and it looks black and white, because I've seen, you know, Tommy Cooper and, course, you know, yeah, you know yeah. Dancing Girls and, you know, Top Gear and everything. So it, there's tremendous brand strength in the TV stations. The problem is they're all reinventing a wheel in each country, and they're up yeah. against global competitors that are very, very good. And if you put your money on anyone right now, you'd put it on Amazon. The final point I'd make to you is, which I think no one's thinking about, if Amazon do crack TV and they just link it to their website, <laughs> it's done, man. It's fucking done. All my TV is here yeah. and all my shopping is here. Why would you ever need to go anywhere else? What do we know about customers? They don't want that much fucking choice. Yeah. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The more things change, the more they change. Um, it's always darkest just before it gets really fucking black. <laughs> Mr. Maritzen, it's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's good, mate. Thanks a lot to Mark for the interview. And do check out his YouTube talks and follow him on Twitter at Mark Ritson. You can follow us at Ogilvy Consult UK. And of course, check out our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com, where we post regularly on a variety of behavioral science topics. Finally, we want to thank Sound Lounge and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening. And finally, finally, we want to thank you, Julia, for your amazing work over the years and overhave. You influenced me before I uh, started here, and I used to listen to you all the time, and I know it's reflected in the team. So, Maddie's nodding ahead as well. We will miss you. The podcast won't be the same without you. And to all the Julia fans, if we could just keep you as well for next week. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It is in very good hands going on with Maddie and Mike. Cool. Bye, Bye. guys. Good luck. Bye.